Hello, my name is Larry Dobrow. I'm the executive editor of MMM, and I am thrilled to be a part of this sponsored podcast recording with Lucky and Company. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about the pitfalls of data-driven planning. Um, certainly, everybody in healthcare wants data, data, data. Um, they want to glean insights from it. But there are a lot of organizations that seem to be doing data for data's sake. And I think Lucky is going to sort that out for us today. I am thrilled to be joined by John Gardner, who is the president of the company, and Kamala Prince, who is the VP and the pharma practice leader. John, Kamala, thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation, Larry. All right. First question is the one that we've been doing on almost all of our conversations for about 18 months now. Um, how are you both? Um, how has Lucky weathered this fairly unprecedented period that we've had over the last uh, year and a half? Oh, wow. It, uh, you talk about unprecedented uh, challenges, uh, but also unprecedented opportunities. I would say from a Lucky uh, company perspective, we've done well once we've, we were able to level set the new normal of what uh, a COVID environment looks like in a post-COVID recovery. Uh, what that means is we had to be much more nimble, much more intentional about communications, had to accept uh, that Zoom was our friend, and, uh, but also create uh, a little more grace with our people to understand that our work environment was one uh, of many challenges our people had. Uh, I think Camel probably can speak uh, again to the challenges of what she's been through managing a team from Raleigh, North Carolina, when the bulk of her team is in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, I think um, what was interesting about COVID is that I was uh, one of the first remote employees for Lucky. And so I was one of the few who was living on Zoom calls. Um, once COVID hit, everyone could feel my pain of at times not being able to, to hear folks on the Zoom call or um, having technical issues. And so it really kind of leveled the playing field for everyone to, uh, to have to, to weather the storm and, and figure out technology. It also, however, meant that we needed to over-communicate and to find ways to connect and also extend grace in the fact that we were living and working in one environment. I think what was also um, has been really interesting, but also something I'm really proud of is we've watched our team grow during COVID and brought on some really key players within bringing on new people. We were able to bring them onto the organization. They were able to have impact, even though we didn't all get in a room for you know, three to four months after starting. Um, and so we are also now uh, in this post-COVID world, getting to know each other, being in the room for the first time and building those connections face-to-face -face rather than over a Zoom call. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're all returning to the office and realizing like, wait a second, you know, this person is much taller than <laughs> that she or he was. So, uh, exactly. Larry, we had 42 people hired uh, in between uh, the March 17th, 2020 and today. Wow. Uh, that we had to onboard and bring into a really special culture. And it again, I, I think a lot of the new people, uh, just like you said, is, hey, I didn't know this about you, the personal side. Uh, but what it did is it broke down uh, silos, uh, either geographic silos uh, or department silos, because everybody was equal in a two-dimensional Zoom screen. Kamal, something that you addressed, you touched on in the answer just before about um, all of us becoming familiar with technology. I guess to a certain extent, uh, the last year or so has made us all 
technologists in our own way, but Lucky is a really good technologist. And especially within the realm of data, the company has distinguished itself in a way that I think a lot of people probably envy. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about that. Tell me a little bit in a very big picture sense, what data pharma marketers need to be successful? Um, what are the most important things to have? Yeah, well, for me, it's um, being at Lucky is a very interesting experience because I was previously a client. So I was the pharmaceutical marketer wrestling with data. And, you know, at the end of the day, it really comes down to being able to demonstrate a return on investment or impact on the marketing investments. Um, this time of year, I still twitch a little bit when I think about the fact that this is usually the time of year when I was thinking about the next year's uh, marketing plan and having to defend the choices in my marketing plan. And the best plans I had always had some aspect of data, of being able to say, here is what the expected return on investment will be for this initiative as it's funded, and here's why. And so that's really at the end of the day, all of the data that you can get your hands on that ladder up to, I'm, I'm confident that this program, this initiative is going to be successful. That's the data that a pharma marketer needs. And, it, and kind of taking one step below that, it's demonstrating uh, engagement with your target audience. Uh, thinking about reaching healthcare professionals who are a varied group. Um, they are big consumers of all types of all channels of media and uh, digital channels. In this day and age, the more data you can have and the more you can connect the dots with that data, the more impactful your programs can be. And I think that's something that we talk about with our clients um, all the time, regardless of where they are in terms of size of company or stage of the life cycle. Yeah, and I think, uh, Larry, as we, we as from the, the marketing uh, agency side, we tend to view data as a, an historic representation of what happens. And what we've tried to do, uh, and I think the, the, the marketers uh, on the, the brand sides are looking for more predictive or prescriptive types of, of data and analytics. Used to be it was we presented a marketing plan to a brand manager or a marketing leader, and it was about metrics like awareness and touches and those types of things. Now you're looking at what is my cost per script? What is the impact on marketing on new prescriptions and trajectories and velocity? And so data is now becoming uh, a have to have in the planning process versus a nice to have. And it's what it's doing is it's reducing that risk when big dollars are at play. In the context of what you both just said, now that it is a have to have rather than a nice to have um, with data, I mean, do you want to distinguish now? Do you want to even get more granular? Do you want to distinguish between good data or bad data? I know initially companies were like, well, let's just accumulate it all and we'll sort it out later. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Sure, I'll, I'll start and uh, then let Kamala jump in. But our, our position with data is there is no bad data. There's only bad or misaligned insights from the data. And what we tend to do as analysts is overweight certain uh, data sets that uh, validate or are easy to get. And so what we try to press upon uh, our, our client partners is take a holistic view of, of the data ecosystem 
and how it relates to the entire demand creation cycle. So what we mean by that is it's not just about Google Analytics and it's just it's not just about um, clicks, likes, follows, uh, forwards. But in pharma, what we're trying to do is understand the relationship to the bare business driving elements. What is the value of a, of a rep's call and the information they get followed on by that doctor's visit to a, a branded or unbranded asset tied to what happens in their patient universe, maybe with rebates or those types of things. So the connectivity of data is what's important, not the volume of data. And Kamala, I know you're leading several initiatives for us where our client partners are trying to make sense of data. How would you answer that? Yeah, I, I would add on to what you said, which is what I think you said was perfect. But what I'll add to that is not only is there no bad data in terms of quantitative data, but also don't forget the value of qualitative data. So when we're talking to, when we're onboarding new clients and we're talking about what data do you have, we don't just ask for the quantitative data. We also wanna know those qualitative data points that you have as well. If you've done market research and gotten uh, 20 physicians in a room, that's still valuable because we can then connect it to the quantitative data and start to get closer to the why, what the why of the behavior. And so, you know, I agree with John, there is really is no bad data. And the more of a 360 view, the more data we can look at, whether it be qualitative or quantitative, the better interpretation of that data mm. we can make. To that end, the data that's available to healthcare marketers now Tell me a little bit about how it's evolved. Absolutely. Kamala mentioned, uh, you know, qualitative data. When I first started in this uh, uh, area about 25 years ago, uh, the best source of data that we got on our professionals was an ad board uh, or a, a sales call report. And one or two key opinion leaders could drive the entire trajectory of a, of a brand's business. Well, what we have seen on the... Uh, especially on the professional side, the data has, ex has just been exponential. Um, I remember sitting in a, uh, a brainstorming session probably about 15 years ago, and a great strategist said, you know that doctors are also people. <laughs> and there's a way that you can create people-centric data on our professionals. You know, attitudinal, motivation, psych psych graphics, those types of things. And so what we've seen is the volume of transactional data is always there. What have they written? How often? Uh, at what velocity? But we've also enhanced that with descriptive type data. You know, what, where's, where are they practicing? What type of hospital? What type of specialty do they have? And we're also looking at those types of motivation uh, types of data is what's their adoption curve on new products? What do they feel about different mechanisms, actions, those types of things have just exploded uh, in our world. And what I'll add to that is that uh, once you have that kind of data and you're able to pull it all in, you're we're able to get closer to eat that individual healthcare professional in this example, and be able to understand what's the right message at the right time to the right person. And that's where the relevance, where the impact really comes from. And so mm -hmm. I think that's, we're better able to deliver on that than we've ever been able so, to before. 
And, and I'll just give you a, a practical example is when Kemal and I first started working together, uh, we were working in the HIV space and we were dominating our marketing efforts on the doctors that were high prescribing, which absolutely makes sense, uh, which roughly uh, round numbers, let's say it was about 5,000 doctors in the United States. Um, but there was another 5,000 doctors, uh, and we'll call it in the white space, that didn't have rep access, that didn't have those concentrations of HIV patients. And what we were able to understand is the treatment uh, populace of the HIV disease state was anybody writing a script. And so what that allowed us do is to use the data to vary our content and our, our frequency and our channels of communication to not only serve the brand uh, and expanding their ability to sell the product, but it also provided a patient population um, that needs to be treated by doctors that may not be that familiar with the disease state or the products, information to basically serve patient and professional. John, you actually uh, almost answered part of this question uh, in your last answer, but I'll throw it at you anyway. Getting that good data, um, how do you do it? Um, and is it a harder task in this data-rich world that we're in right now than it was when you started doing this? Oh, yeah. It, um, it's actually much easier now uh, because of technology in, in the sense of the volume of data. What has become harder, uh, I think, in, in our world is that sorting through the, the, all of the data sets that we have available to us and creating uh, the data story has become more complex. It used to be uh, we got a data set and a data scientist could run cross tabs, could run regressions, could do this, and we'd come out with an answer. Now there's a storytelling aspect uh, to the data that has to occur before we even start analysis is how does this uh, data relate to this and what's the impact? So the volume and the access to data is far exponentially easier telling the story is exponentially harder. And that's, uh, I think, where we are as an industry uh, of trying to make sense of that, not just creating analysis because we can, but creating al analysis because we should and it has an impact. Yeah, and what I'll, I'll add to that is that I think too, sometimes within organizations, there's an in internal selling component of telling that story. Um, because especially in larger organizations, the data resides in a number of different places, and it's not always readily either handled or accessed by the marketer. And so the, the marketer has to be able to be able to go to, let's say, the analytics department and make a case for, I need to get the prescription data. Having the prescription data in addition to the sales data is going to be, allow me um, or allow the programs to be better because and being mm -hmm. able to answer that question. And we, we see that um, for some clients, it's a lot easier conversation for others. Um, it's, a, it's having multiple conversations in order to get access to that data. But with that rich data set, as, as John has said, we can move to not just saying what happened, but move into being able to be more predictive in the analysis. Akamala, there's that selling challenge, which you just referenced, um, but how about the challenge that comes with organizations that might not be fully steeped in analytics? Um, how does your task differ when you come to an organization and you, know, you work with an organization that's maybe a little more 
naive, maybe a little bit more of a newcomer to the space than some established organizations. And that's that's the important importance of partnership. And um, you know, our view is that we are partnering with our clients to move their business forward. And so, in those cases, we're we're both the the consultant and the Sherpa, if you will, who's helping to shepherd them along the path. And it really starts by understanding and and really discussing what are the business challenges, what problems. Um, with either the brand or within um, the franchise that our client is looking to solve. And by having those conversations up front, then we can map that path. We can identify what are the key business challenges that are keeping them up at night that if we can address, solve, test and learn, that will move the business forward. And then from there, a lot of times with clients, we partner and we are doing the analysis or we're getting the data to be able to do the analysis that needs to be done. For some of our clients, that's a big asset because they may not have the resources internally or have a department set up to do the type of analysis, the predictive analytics, the advanced analytics that needs to be done. And so um, we're able to come in, step in, either consult or do the analysis so that they have the answers that they need in order to move the business forward. Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump in is that... Um... Typically, what we see is the hardest thing to do is take that first step, uh, in a, especially in smaller organizations that know they, they're getting pressure from either their investors, their board, or their CEO is, I need data, you need to use data, and it can become overwhelming. So generally, our, our advice is make it simple, is ask key demand-driving questions to help guide that. So give you an example, a key demand driving question uh, in a small uh, pharmaceutical or healthcare organization might be, what is the impact on non-personal selling on scripts? If you frame it in terms of something that simple, then what what do we know? We need need sales call data. We need engagement data with our emails and our, our social or any digital assets. And we need to understand what doctors are engaging. That just by framing those simple questions, we're not trying to say, I need every piece of data that's, um, that's out there, all aggregated and ready to go on day one. And it allows it to become an incremental process as opposed to an overwhelming undertaking. John, what you said about questions just now um, leads right into something else I wanted to ask. It's the questions that marketers should be asking their analytics teams, um, their data partners. What, what are some of the questions that you're not being asked often enough? Um, what are some of the things that you'd like to hear from a client when you start working with um, him or her sometime into the relationship with him or her? Oh, that's, oh, that's it's such a great and loaded uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, you know, I think on the, the, the sophisticated side of what we love to, to have is more questions about what will happen than what did happen. You know, that's the difference, I think, between moving demand and understanding what happened. Uh, so, for example, I love it when people come to, to Lucky and say, John, if we invest a million dollars in this initiative, what can we expect to happen? Um, and what can we expect the impact to not only today, but also tomorrow. We, are, we also love to be uh, sitting at the table and ask about the change in behavior 
uh, with especially doctors. What has happened over time uh, with our initiatives? Are they writing more? Are they engaging more? Um, have they changed their trajectory either with brand preference, product preference, or channel preference? Um, we love, absolutely love when people uh, ask us about the, the connection between stakeholders. For example, we get, hey, if we do this, can we affect the patient payer and um, professional ecosystem with any uh, impact? Those are the big questions. But I tell you, I love even that uh, the simple questions of, John, tell me what happened with this content and are we creating resonance and behavior change with doctors? Kamala, you've been on uh, both sides of it. What questions do you love? You know, the question I, I, I think I love the most because by nature, I'm a planner, is the question, how can I set up my data engine so that I'm able to know when there's a change in behavior, what's happening um, with this program. So ultimately what that'll, by setting it up at the start, by planning out um, how to leverage data to understand what's happening in real time, you can optimize programs. So instead of saying a program failed or didn't or succeeded or fell somewhere in the middle, with that planning up front and asking the question, how can I set things up up front to be able to do this? Instead of talking about success or failure, we're talking about, okay, I'm seeing my results. How can I optimize? How can I improve? How can I address this quickly in real time? That, that's the question I love. It's the question of how do I set this up up mm -hmm. front before yep. <laughs> the readout at the end that says, okay, here's your grade, you know, so it was successful or not successful. So I'll add one thing. My favorite question I was ever uh, asked uh, in this environment is what program should I kill? Uh, because we tend to be in an industry that anniversaries everything. We've got to do it because we did it in the past. And I love the question of, tell me what's not working so that we can take those dollars and invest it somewhere else. Do, do clients generally listen to the answer? Um, or is it like one of those sometimes, you know, you hit on somebody's favorite or a pet project and it's like, uh-uh. You know, yes to both. Um, I think what generally happens, um, it depends on the, the disruption occurring uh, within the brand. Are we seeing market disruption? And it was really interesting during COVID, I think we've seen more acceptance of tell me what's not working so that I can understand the changes in our market. We can't call on doctors. We can't see them. We've got to change from personal to non-personal. Patients aren't going in and seeing doctors. So what can we do? So the market led to a, an acceptance of that. But it's generally very difficult uh, with a, a product that is performing that is uh, has a high degree of market share, you know, you don't want to upset the, the boat and I get it. Let's move on to questions around interpretation of the data. Um, once you have it, what, are, what approach should marketers take in terms of interpreting it? And uh, what are maybe some of the mistakes that companies make when they start doing this? So we have a uh, process that we go through, it's called the design for analysis is so, and I always, I, I was a long time ago before the gray hair popped up, I was a, a data analyst and I would have, I would love it when uh, the marketers would come to me and said, I need an insight. And I would say, okay, the sky is blue. And they're saying, that's not an insight. 
And I said, then ask me a question that has impact that you want me to answer. And I think part of interpreting the data is not a technical or analytics function. It's actually a strategic and marketing function. So if we ask good questions, um, the answers generally are easy to, to get to. So when, when I think about interpreting the data, it's generally before the program, the campaign or the initiative starts that we know the questions we need answered to, and it makes interpreting the, the, the data very easily. And I think it also avoids the pitfall of reading what you want to see into the data. If we've asked the questions up front, um, then before the program starts, then you're less likely to be biased or cherry picking data to reinforce <laughs> beliefs or um, protect a sacred cow or pr protect um, or even uh, maybe kill something that shouldn't be killed. Mm -hmm. And so it really does start up front. And it's one of the reasons why our business intelligence team are, are really part of the upfront team at the time we're scoping projects, even though they're the big part of their job typically comes after the program has started in analyzing the program. But we feel very strongly that they are very important upfront to help us help us craft those questions, but also to make sure that the data is there to evaluate it at the end. Yeah. And I think uh, the, you know, kind of a key takeaway for our audience is we have to avoid uh, um, the mistake of we have so much, uh, we'll call it digital data right now, um, that it is a snapshot. Really what we want to do in, in pharmaceutical marketing, healthcare marketing, is understand the behavior changes over time and to not over-index to, again, a click, a like, a follow, a, a share, um, to make sure that it is tied back to those key demand driving data sets. So it's telling a whole view, a single singular view of the customer, so to speak, whether it's patient uh, or professional. Is there ever any pushback to that? Um, you know, companies that want to be more, this is a moment in time versus being more prescriptive for the road ahead. Um, organizations that maybe are inclined to kind of, I don't want to, you know, dump by companies, but, you know, you hear a lot of, especially organizations that aren't exactly data experts, you know, you are, maybe they're more willing to accept some of those facile conclusions. I think it, it really starts with that, those initial conversations of what do you want to learn? And, and in addition to that, I'll say, and, and sometimes the pitfall for those, for those companies is that they haven't seen what can be done with data. Um, I, I probably find more often than not, it's um, not realizing that the data that they've been capturing and analyzing at the end of the program could have been used to either um, support um, or to create hypotheses around the programs that are being created and then ultimately evaluate them. Um, and so, it, yeah, there, maybe there's an over-reliance on looking at the data after the fact, um, but that's the, the fun for us of coming in and saying, do you realize you can also predict outcomes that we can get you to a point where we're starting to understand behavior, track behavior over time and be predictive in what we're doing. And, you know, when we work with an, uh, an organization that's willing to take that chance, um, it's, it's a great deal of fun because in the end, you're able to show them how much more could be done with their data. And then they want to do more and more and more. It builds um, on itself. Right? Yeah. Exactly. 
But definitely, um, you know, in, in our business, we have uh, occasions where our advice is considered and ignored. Our obligation is to make sure that uh, as a consultative partner, we try to point that out and then we just have to move on. But there are certain cases that, um, I, hey, John and Kemal, I love what you're saying, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> how, how does the relationship go forward after that kind of uh, considered it, plus ignored pairing? <laughs> you know, uh, Larry, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're very nice people. And sometimes you just want to say, I told you so, uh, but you bite your tongue and, and you, uh, you move forward. But, uh, you know, it's, and that's been one of, I think, the biggest evolution over my 25 years uh, in the data business intelligence space, especially in pharma, is what used to be a competitive advantage for a very entrepreneurial pharmaceutical companies has now become table stakes. Um, so that resistance has, has come down, you know, we became over-reliant on uh, third-party data and data that was so available, you know, cookie data and data sets that uh, Google, Facebook, uh, and the, the big players have all of a sudden said no to. And so we are now having to re-examine and resell the idea of we have to take a different approach to analytics, and sometimes we're told no. Let's move on towards, you know, we, you know, we've been talking a little bit about getting the data, interpreting it accurately. Um, the next piece is, you know, how, how to apply it. Um, I think it's a question maybe for you, Kamala. Um, how, how do you apply this wealth of data to the planning programs? Um, how do you use it to build plans that have impact? Yeah, I think it really starts um, with those business challenges, understanding the key issues um, for the brand or the franchise. And then um, from there, taking a look at the data. What data have we learned? What programs uh, worked and didn't work last year? And building that understanding of what's been done, what hasn't been tried up front. And then also, too, making sure that throughout the year, we're also evaluating and analyzing the programs, gathering data on physician behavior, because all of that data can be used to support a, a program in the marketing plan. Um, so it really starts with understanding where, you know, where we've been um, in order to set where we're going. And then following that, as you start to, as you start the new year, making sure that we're constantly analyzing both the programs, um, understanding the data in terms of uh, in terms of audience or customer behavior, so that when you get to planning for the next year, the the plans have um, kind of built in a rationale. Um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the best plans that I, I was able to put together were when I was able to say, "We did this program last year. Here was the re the positive return on investment. If we do this program or if we expand this program, this is the return on investment we um, we expect." That's the best. You don't always get that level of data, but when you've got an insight or um, a piece of data that shows um, the likelihood of success, it's a lot easier to get that funding than when it's trust me. I think I know. <laughs> I think I know. <laughs> That's usually the the argument that has the least impact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to that end, um, we haven't talked at all about new drug launches and how they're a little bit dip more difficult in the current environment, given that you know training sales teams, giving them a list of doctors, you know, you can't rely upon it as you once did. Um, how do you think having the right data and having the right insights can help ameliorate this situation and hopefully 
bring organizations back to where they want to be in terms of these outreaches uh, during a launch phase? Great question. Uh, in the past 18 months, I think we've uh, been a part of uh, at least six uh, new drug launches or category extensions. We've had to throw out the rules of let's see what happens in React. We've had to be go from um, lagging indicators to leading indicators. And uh, what has created a lot of success for us, and we, we talked about uh, HCP or professional segmentation models that we've developed uh, to be able to understand characteristics that used to be a salesperson's gut. Uh, Dr. Smith, I, I know him. I got a great relationship. He'll be an early adopter and he'll be a key opinion leader. We can't, we don't have that data. And so what we have been able to do is take historic data and bring in attitudinal firmographic uh, and other behavioral data to understand how we can proxy that uh, personal relationship in a non-personal world. You know, we always like to tell our client partners in the marketing analytics is out of the chute, we're guessing just like you are. But if we can guess and take a, a failure curve from 50% to less than 10%, we're guessing with more reliability. And I think that's the approach we're doing is if we've got uh, a thousand docs we think could write um, a script for this new product and we're able to go from a 50% success rate to a 70% success rate, the econ econometrics of that success allow us to amplify the impact of the business and reinvest much quicker. And what's really critical about that is it, it, with pharma launches, you've got a very limited window to get uptake. Um, you know, I've, I've seen data where, you know, you've really got about 12 to 15 weeks to make it to basically make an impact to um, to launch well. Um, otherwise, you're going to have you're basically fighting for every SharePoint after that. Um, so the importance of reducing risk upfront by leveraging the data um, that, that or what you already know about the physicians you're targeting is critical in order to be successful and to, to make sure that launch trajectory happens um, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And, and give you an example of how simple it can be uh, applied is by understanding in a non-personal world that we're in that this doctor, uh, his critical pathway to script is understanding the, the patient benefits, the side effects, the uh, ec economics of the drug, whereas this one wants to know uh, the advocacy, efficacy and efficiency of the product. And just that simple understanding can help consideration and adoption at scale and at velocity. This has been a absolutely fascinating conversation, um, but I'd like to end with a question that's probably almost a little bit unfair um, because the future is basically changing every uh, every couple of minutes nowadays, much less at its usual quick pace. Um, let's say we're having this conversation a year from now. Um, how quickly will some of the issues that we've spoken about today evolve? You know, you have a situation where there are privacy considerations, where cookies and so much else of the you know, the stuff under the hood is changing. Um, are the two of you optimistic that pharma will continue on its path of being you know, very smart about the way it uses data, the way it mines insights, or is there going to be some kind of kind of some tough lessons along the way? 
So I'll, I'll go and I'll let Kimball close us out is um, I don't see us coming back because we have a generation of marketers uh, and business leaders that have become addicted to data and insights correctly. So I do think that the new privacy and technical uh, challenges that that will present is going to force us to go back to the future a little bit. Um, when I first started in this business, getting a doctor or a patient email was the holy grail. We abandoned that for, I want to be able to follow them all over the uh, internet with a cookie and that's gone or going away. And so some going back to first party data and understanding that the instant gratification of, I can follow at somebody across uh, every touch point, the omni-channel world is going to be reduced. It's going to force us to be more methodical, more planned, um, but I don't see us ever going back from the need for using data to create impact, not only in planning, but also in optimization. And I think what's great about the pharmaceutical industry is that we've always had to evolve. There's always been a new challenge. I came into the industry right after the pharma guidelines or as the pharma guidelines were coming, coming in and that changed how uh, pharmaceutical companies engaged with uh, healthcare professionals and new ideas came into play. Digital became a larger part of the industry. I think data became uh, more, even more important. So I don't think the role of data will change. I think um, we will, as an industry, be more nimble in coming up with solutions. I think we will continue to borrow from other industries that are also facing the same challenges. Um, within Lucky, we have a business unit that focuses on hospitality and consumer packaged goods. And, and often we learn a lot from what they have to wrestle and the data gaps and learning from how they navigate the data gaps uh, that they have in terms of working with a consumer audience. And so I think we'll continue to be nimble and we'll, uh, and we'll figure it out um, because we've always had to figure it out. That's one thing that uh, pharma has always done. Looked at what's right in front of it and said, okay, let's tackle this thing, you know, rather than kicking it down the road. John, Connell, this was a wonderful conversation. I feel a hell of a lot smarter than I was than when we started. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. Thank you so Thank much, you. Larry. Thank That's you. Important. And for the MMM podcast, um, this is Larry Gilbrow. Thanks for listening and be well.